So this evening, I want to begin with a reminder of the overall theme of this retreat. But first, just wanted to see, out of interest, how many of you even know what the theme for this retreat is? Very good, that's more than usual. So the title of the retreat is Finding the Heart of Freedom. And you may not remember, or maybe you conveniently forgot, that the subtext is an exploration of dukkha, our relationship to unsatisfactoriness, to stress, to distress, to suffering. And the point of doing that is so that we can live with more ease, more happiness, more peace, more freedom. And as you hear that theme described, it's possible that some of you might be coming into contact with the mind's inherent negativity bias that tends to pay a lot more attention to suffering than to my description of ease and happiness and peace and freedom. And so partly because of that negativity bias, that's one of the reasons that I've been starting this retreat was putting quite a bit of emphasis on the positive aspects of practice. So we began with dana, generosity. And I've been inviting you through all the sittings to orient to ease, to relaxation, as supports for samadhi, stability of mind. And then this afternoon we were exploring very directly how the body feels when it's temporarily free of clinging. When it's free of clinging and experiencing release. And after that session, many of you reported your experience very clearly, how when we pay attention, what we pay attention to has a powerful, has a powerful effect on the state of our hearts and our minds. And we can use that conditionality to our advantage to help keep cultivating skillful mental qualities and to keep releasing unskillful mental qualities. Or as Thich Nhat Hanh famously put it, happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. Pretty simple. But strangely, even though in theory it is always available, it's surprising how often we don't help ourselves to it. So it's not enough, obviously, just to tell ourselves to be happy. We have to investigate what gets in the way of happiness. And that's exactly where the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths come in. So the Buddha was a master at deconstructing our experience deconstructing it into its component parts so that, as Leodin was saying, we can see how we're contributing to that process of getting caught in unskillful reactivity. And again, that's what some of you are recognizing this afternoon in that session where I briefly mentioned that the first noble truth, in that the Buddha referred to clinging as being bound up with dukkha. In fact, in that truth, he summarized all of our suffering in terms of what he called the five aggregates subject to clinging, or the five clinging aggregates for short. So don't worry, I'm not going to go into all five of these tonight. 
partly because recently at Auckland Insight I gave a whole series of talks on them. So just for the benefit of everyone else, let's see if you can remember <laughs> in numerical order <laughs> what these five aggregates are. I didn't cling to it, Jill. <laughs> Very good. Perfect answer. You didn't cling to it, but you did you just allow it to come into your consciousness and be known? And then sounds like it flew away again. Okay, anybody? I'll give you a clue. It's similar to the Satipatthana Sutta. What's the first? I'm asking you to name the five clinging aggregates. Body. Body, yes. Thank you. Material form, including the body. Feelings. Feeling tones. That's the second one, yeah. Shita mind. No, that's the foundation of mindfulness. Perception. Perception. Thank you, whoever said that. It's getting more complex now. Volitional mental formations and consciousness. So that's just for context because, as I said, I'm not going to go into all of them for now. All we need to know at this point is that these are five areas of focus, or you could say locus, of where we tend to cling, to hold on, or to resist and to reject And so those reactions of clinging and resisting almost always reinforce an unconscious identification with our experience, that tendency to take it personally and to use it to construct a fixed and solid and static identity to make it me, mine, who I am, which most of the time only strengthens the intensity of the suffering. So, the more clearly we can see these areas of clinging, the more motivated we are to release it when we feel the suffering of them. To release, to let go, to let be, and to accept experience just as it is. So we can take that summary of the five aggregates and in some ways simplify our practice right down to just two movements. Is there a clinging or is there release? And that's what we are starting to explore this afternoon. Release. Clinging or release. Very simple. Like we were doing this afternoon, remember? How did it feel in the body when there was that holding on, resisting, rejecting? And how did it feel when that was absent? And I'm defining that as an experience of release, when there's ease and spaciousness and openness, and you could say non-identification. Does that make sense? A little bit? Okay, thank you. So, so we've been exploring the body on this retreat so far, because it's also an establishment of mindfulness. So this evening I'd like to move on to the second of the five clinging aggregates, which conveniently is also an establishment of mindfulness. So we get two for the price of one here. So the second of the five clinging aggregates is Vedana. As Tony said, 
usually translated, often translated as feeling or feeling tones. And it's a technical term. And it refers to just that bare recognition of any experience we have, at any of the senses, as being either pleasant or unpleasant, or neither, in other words, neutral. So that basic affective quality before it compounds into a more complex reaction of liking or not liking or not knowing. So sometimes Vedana is translated as feelings, but I generally stay away from that just because in English the word feelings also means emotions. And what Vedana is referring to is something more simpler than emotion. It's just that very first hit of pleasant, unpleasant or neutral before the mind creates an emotional reaction to it. And this bare recognition is just a function of having a human nervous system. It's happening on a basic level, automatic level, and we don't have any control over it. So every sight, every sound, every smell, every taste, every physical sensation, even our mental activity, is automatically being registered as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And most of the time that processing is happening just below the level of consciousness. In fact, I understand that it's coming from a more primitive part of the brain, the reptilian brain. And it makes sense because actually feeling tone is not very sophisticated. It seems to have originated from a time in our evolution when we needed to work out very quickly whether something was going to eat us, or whether we could eat it, or perhaps whether we could mate with it. So the brain evolved that basic fight-flight strategy, and it's stayed with us. And as our brains evolve, we've just learned how to overlay those things with apparently, apparently more sophisticated <laughs> reasonings and rationales for what we do. So in my own experience, it was quite humbling when I first learned about Vedana and to recognize it playing out in my own experience. Because before that point, I believed that I was a relatively sophisticated human being and that I was making informed and intelligent choices in relation to my complex and sophisticated life. But when I started paying attention to Vedana, I realized that actually... I'm not that different from an amoeba. There's a single-celled amoeba. Even that is blobbing towards what it likes and blobbing away from what it doesn't like and just blobbing generally if nothing much is going on. And if I really look at my own motivations, it's not that different. The only difference between me and an amoeba is that I have a delusion that I'm a highly functioning organism. (laughs) So maybe you think I'm exaggerating, but check it out. Just think back over some of the decisions you made today. If you investigate them with mindfulness, you'll probably realize that most of what you did was motivated on a very basic level, either by the moving towards pleasant, away from unpleasant, or if it was neutral, probably went off looking for something more stimulating. 
So there's nothing inherently wrong or bad about the experience of Vedana. It's just a normal function of our nervous system. And even if we wanted to, we couldn't stop it from happening. Because it's yet another aspect of our experience that we're not actually in control of. But even though it's mostly unseen, it has a very powerful impact on the way we live our lives. Again, because when we cling to feeling tones or resist them, that becomes the basic building block of all of our reactivity. So I'd go so far as to say that every one of our problems, every one of the world's problems, comes from a basic lack of ability to relate skillfully to Vedana, to feeling tone. So paying attention to Vedana has an ethical dimension to it. And it's probably one of the reasons why the Buddha puts so much emphasis on such an apparently simple aspect of being a human being. Because when there is no mindfulness, these three feeling tones tend to strengthen and reinforce the three core afflictive energies that in Buddhism are referred to as greed, hatred and delusion. So this stimulation of feeling tone, conditioning, greed, hatred and delusion is happening moment to moment, but also over the course of our whole lives. So each time that we react unconsciously to pleasant, unpleasant or neutral stimuli, we're strengthening those neural pathways. So pleasant feeling tones tend to strengthen wanting, which becomes habitual and turns into the habit mind of greed. Unpleasant feeling tones strengthen not wanting. And when that reaction becomes habitual, it turns into the habit mind of hatred or aversion. Neutral feeling tones strengthen not knowing or ignoring. And when that reaction becomes habitual, it turns into the habit mind of delusion or ignorance. So even right now, moment to moment, in those micro-responses, we're shaping our hearts and minds, sculpting them, crafting them, through the action of feeling tone and our responses to it. So the more habitually we react to these feeling tones, the more greed, hatred and delusion get their hooks into us and become the default setting of our minds. And that's because of the neuroscience understanding that neurons that fire together, wire together. And then that clinging to those reactions, we tend to make them into an identity, make them me and mine and who I am, by clinging to our preferences, our likes and our dislikes. So just a simple example from my own life of how unrecognized Vedana can affect us and be used unconsciously to create an identity. So it happened quite a few years ago now when I was living in Australia and I needed to go for a long drive across the state to another town. So I didn't own a car at that time and a friend let me borrow his. And it was the middle of summer so I set off early in the morning when the day was just pleasantly warm. 
And I was quite enjoying this novel experience of driving a car through the countryside, and it was a new and comfortable car. I was in a pretty good mood. And then after some period of time, I got stuck behind a big truck, and the one in front of me had a bumper sticker that I thought was pretty offensive. So it was a flicker of judgmental thoughts. And they took me by surprise because I'd been thinking I was in a good mood. I noticed the day was getting hot, so I turned on the air conditioning. (coughs) And then, yeah, lovely day. Who cares about the truck's bumper sticker? It's beautiful. I'm happy. And then I remembered how my friend had said, if you have the air conditioning on, it makes the fuel economy bad, so I shouldn't use it unless I really, really needed to. So I to turn off the air conditioning. Then a few minutes later, my friend is not that generous, really. <laughs> you know, he's so obsessed about his car. and I was like, wow, what's wrong with me? I was all happy and now I'm all irritable. And I noticed it's getting hot, so I turned on the air conditioning. And, oh, what a nice day. This is lovely. My friend's so generous to lend me his car. <laughs> You get what's happened. (laughs) It took me a long time. It was a long drive, so I had to go through multiple cycles of getting too hot, bad mood, turning it into an identity, turning on the air conditioning, cooling down, being bad in a good mood. Feeling tone was creating all of these unconscious reactions, and then I was taking them as being me. I'm the grumpy one, or I'm the happy one, and so on. So that's a really simple example. And you can probably point to your own examples through the course of this retreat so far. So the first thing we need to do is to see how it's happening. So just looking a bit more closely about unpleasant Vedana, we try to recognize it as close to the source as possible before it turns into a full-blown reaction of not liking so even right now, you might notice in the body, to keep it simple, any slight unpleasant feeling tone anywhere. Mm-hmm. And just to stay with it and not feed it, not resist it. Even just to name, oh, it's just unpleasant feeling tone. Does that create a little bit more space around it? Sometimes just naming it as that helps it to release. The problem, though, if we don't just see it, we don't have this training in staying pleasant with it, is, sorry, staying present with it, is that it tends to condition not liking, trying to move away from it. And then it can amplify into all kinds of afflictive states irritation and frustration, rage, blame, resistance, loathing, judgment, anxiety, fear, jealousy, etc., etc. So aversion itself is unpleasant, which tends to create more unpleasant feeling tones, which creates more reactivity to it. And we get caught in proliferation, spinning out in suffering, So many of you are probably familiar with the Buddha's analogy for this in that sutta he gave on the two darts. Do you know that one? Where he said, he's talking about what he calls an untaught worldling. 
And an untaught worldling is someone who doesn't have any training in these teachings. And he says, when an untaught worldling is shot by an arrow, they're touched by a painful bodily feeling. And then they worry and grieve, lament, beat their breast, weep and are distraught. Thus they experience two kinds of feelings, a bodily and a mental feeling. It's as if a person were pierced by a dart, and following the first piercing, they are hit by a second dart, so that a person will experience feelings caused by two darts. So that's a pretty simple illustration of how we add an extra dart to that suffering. But as I often say, we generally don't stop at adding one. We usually add five, ten, twenty, a hundred extra darts and pile on enhance that suffering. So the Buddha contrasted that with the responses of a well-taught noble disciple, who you can probably guess doesn't add reactivity to it. And this is not so easy, because when we don't have training, our usual response, when we contact unpleasant feeling tones, is to seek some kind of pleasant experience to get rid of the unpleasantness. So the big drawback of doing this is we get caught in a kind of binary push and pull from unpleasant to pleasant to unpleasant and back again. Because when we just go after a pleasant experience to escape the unpleasant, the pleasant doesn't last. Then it's unpleasant again. And we have to find the next hit of pleasant as an antidote to the unpleasant. So we just become like a hamster on a treadmill. And the Buddha recognizes when he said, when under the impact of painful feeling, the untaught worlding resists and resents it, and they proceed to enjoy sensual happiness. Why? Because they do not know of any other escape from painful feelings than the enjoyment of sensual happiness. So I'm guessing most of us can relate to this strategy. In our ordinary lives outside of retreat, most of the time, when something unpleasant happens, we just automatically reach for an antidote, some kind of pleasantness. So perhaps it's a glass of wine, or a few bowls of ice cream, or a handful of painkillers, or maybe we call a friend, or go for a long run, walk the dog, hug our partner, go shopping, binge watch TV. Any other common strategies that I missed? Yes? No? Jigsaw puzzle? Jigsaw puzzles? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Someone else? Eat chocolate. Eat chocolate, yep. Yeah. Video games. Video games. Yeah, we've all got our default strategy that we tend to go to to try and get away from unpleasant. But the downside of that is that it keeps us stuck in our comfort zones. We don't allow ourselves to contact what's unpleasant. And so we never develop the capacity to stay with these life's inevitable challenges. And so when the big ones come, old age, sickness, injury, death, 
We don't have the resources to meet them and we suffer even more. So that's a huge topic. I'm not going to veer off into that one just yet. I want to explore now the pleasant feeling tone and the unskillful ways that we often relate to that. So again, you might just notice now, in the immediacy of your experience now, anything that might be registering as pleasant. For some people this is harder because of the negativity bias. Just see if you can contact one subtly pleasant experience. And when you notice that, is there any trace of, hmm, well that's good. Stick around a bit. Oh no, don't go away. Come back. Let's let's beef this up. Let's enhance it. So it can be quite subtle, but there's that movement into clinging, to wanting to hold on. And there's a big caveat here that in talking about how sense pleasures can condition greed... Sometimes people misunderstand that the Buddha was saying that we should never enjoy anything or that we should somehow try to avoid pleasant experiences when they do come up. But this is a serious misunderstanding because the pleasant experiences themselves are not the issue. It's our relationship to them that we want to pay attention to. So as a simple example, imagine that at lunchtime, the cooks put out a pile of chocolate brownies at the end of the table. So Now, this is definitely an imaginative exercise. So don't get your hopes up. <laughs> but just in this scenario, imagine I come into the dining room, I see the pile of chocolate brownies, I take one, I eat it slowly, mindfully. I notice all the pleasant tastes and textures and flavors and so on. And then when it's gone, it's gone. No problem. On the other hand, if I come into the dining room and I see that stack of brownies at the end of the table and I immediately start counting how many people are in front of me before I get there and how many brownies are left on the plate and if it would look too greedy to take two on the first go-round and whether the cooks would be able to give me the recipe for later, obviously we've moved out of just simple pleasantness into clinging, grasping. And that's a simple hypothetical example, but you've probably seen this kind of pattern playing out maybe many times, even the, over the course of this retreat. So the relationship between pleasant Vedana and greed is pretty obvious and straightforward. But for some people... Pleasant Vedana can actually bring up aversion in the form of fear. At least this was true for me early on in my own practice, and I sometimes see it in some of the students that I work with too. So earlier I mentioned our mind's inbuilt negativity bias. And for some people this bias is so well developed that they have a hard time even registering pleasant feeling tone. But then, on top of that negativity bias, we sometimes add a whole pile of social and cultural conditioning that reinforces it. And this was what was happening in my own practice. It took me quite a while to realize that I was actually (coughs) suspicious of pleasant experiences. 
seeing them as unreal and lightweight. And conversely, that unpleasant experiences were real and true and just how life is. So when I first started to recognize this bias, I got curious about it. And as I explored it, I realized I had this underlying belief that Dharma practice was supposed to be unpleasant. Because if I was actually enjoying it, then it couldn't be spiritual. And for me, I think this partly came from uh, my Christian upbringing, which I experienced as a kind of Puritanism, and one that, from my perspective, seemed to equate any kind of enjoyment with sin. Now, I'm not saying that all forms of Christianity have that attitude, but the way I experienced it when I was growing up, it seemed that spiritual stuff was supposed to be hard work, uncomfortable, difficult, painful. And if it wasn't those things, then I was clearly doing something wrong. I wasn't practicing hard enough. I wasn't going deep enough. I wasn't seeing clearly enough. And because of that attitude, I had a lot of resistance even to the idea that joy or enjoyment might be a necessary part of the practice. It's just an invitation as you hear this talk to notice if there are any views coming up for you about what real Dharma practice is supposed to look like and to feel like. And if perhaps you do recognize a bias to one side or the other, it can be good practice to consciously tune in to the other side. So to notice pleasant experiences to see if you can let them in without resistance or clinging. And if that feels like too much of a stretch, then at least see if you can open to neutral feeling tone. So just to touch into neutral feeling tone briefly, technically it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling tone. And we usually say neutral just because that's easier to say. But because it's neutral, it takes quite refined awareness to be aware of neutral feeling tone. So you might take a moment now just to see if you can find a touch of that. You might notice an area of the body where nothing much happens. Maybe the earlobes or the inner elbows, maybe the toes. You might notice the temperature of the air against your skin, somewhere whether it fe- somewhere where it feels not too warm, not too cool. And the breath itself, you might notice that change point from in-breath to out-breath. That slight gap is often neutral. Anybody manage to contact something neutral? The earlobes worked really well. The earlobes? Yeah, great. So that's a good reference point. When in doubt, check the earlobes <laughs> and just rest there. Usually, though, when we contact neutral feeling tone, we don't even notice it, and so it tends to condition the mind to go for something more stimulating. And again, sometimes we have almost a fear of neutral experiences because in many ways we're conditioned to drama to seek the highs and lows of life. 
And sometimes that more stable, neutral mid-range can feel foreign or even threatening. And sometimes we experience that on retreat, where we have, for most of us, a much less stimulation than we're used to. And sometimes we find ourselves replaying all kinds of dramas from years ago, or sometimes even inventing new imaginary dramas just to kind of amuse ourselves, because anything is better than just knowing breathing in and breathing out. So I mentioned earlier on my own unbalanced attitude to pleasant experiences. And while it's true that the Buddha did warn us not to get attached to sense pleasures, what sometimes isn't highlighted that is that instead he talked about the importance of cultivating skillful mental qualities instead. So in a way this is the compensation. We give up the physical, worldly sense pleasures and instead we experience calm and ease and happiness and joy and peace. And when we are able to access these profoundly pleasant mental qualities, ordinary sense-based pleasures lose a lot of their attraction. We're much less likely to get pulled into unskillful behavior in relation to them. And we're much more likely to live our lives in ways that benefit others as well as ourselves. So the Buddha was quite radical in the context of India of his time, where, as I think many of you know, most of the uh, religious traditions at that time were practicing very hardcore asceticism, different ways of torturing the body. And the Buddha followed those practices too, to begin with. But after a while after he'd been doing these extreme austerity practices to the point almost of death, he realized it wasn't really working. And so he reviewed, where have I gone astray? And according to the legend, at that point he had a memory of being a six-year-old child. And according to the text, he was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree watching his father, the king, take part in a harvest festival. And it was pleasantly cool in the shade of this tree. And his body and his mind relaxed so much that he spontaneously dropped into the first jhana, which is a state of profound mental absorption that experiences very pleasant. So when the Buddha-to-be had that memory of the mental pleasantness of the jhana state, he realized that it had been his fear of pleasure that was getting in the way of his quest for awakening. And he wondered, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? And so this was a turning point in his practice, and it said that not, not long after that realization, he developed these skillful states more and more fully, ultimately attained complete liberation, complete freedom of heart and mind. So there's a distinction then between 
what is called in the text worldly pleasant feelings, ones that are based on things, sense pleasures like ice cream or chocolate or video games, and pleasant mental states that are not based on those things. And so those pleasant mental states are very much allowable. They're what we're looking for here as a support for our practice. So we want to make that distinction because sometimes people say, well, the Buddha told us not to get attached to pleasant. But what he was talking about were the worldly sense pleasures. And in my own experience, I was so worried about getting attached to enjoyment that for a while I didn't allow myself to feel any joy at all. I was afraid of it. In fact, I was sort of attached to non-attachment. And when we try to disconnect from pleasant experience, then the practice is not very sustainable. So as many of you know, joy is actually one of the seven factors of awakening. And it's a factor in the jhanas, the states of absorption. So it's very much part of this path. And to get a sense of that, I'd like to close with a quote from Bhikkhu Analyo, who's talking about the importance of joy on this path to freedom. He says, after his awakening, the Buddha declared himself to be the one who lived in happiness. This statement clearly shows that, unlike some of his ascetic contemporaries, the Buddha was no longer afraid of pleasant feelings. As he pointed out, it was precisely the successful eradication of all mental unwholesomeness that caused his happiness and delight. The ingenuity of the Buddha's approach was not only his ability to discern between different forms of happiness and pleasure, to understand which are to be pursued and those are to be avoided, but also his harnessing of non-sensual pleasure for the progress along the path. There are numerous discourses that describe how, based on the presence of delight, joy and happiness arise, and these lead in a causal sequence to deep concentration and realization. One discourse compares the dynamics of this causal sequence to the natural course of rain falling on a hilltop, gradually filling the streams and rivers, and finally flowing down to the sea. Once non-sensual joy and happiness have arisen, their presence will lead naturally to concentration or samadhi and realization. Conversely, without gladdening the mind when it needs to be gladdened, realization will not be possible. May we all experience this ever-deepening non-sensual joy and the happiness that ultimately leads to realization. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.